Well, good morning, everyone. What's up? Welcome to Resurrection City Church. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here at Res City, and we are uh, going to hop right into our sermon this morning. I'm going to pray for us first, uh, though, and then we will get going with it. Lord, thank you for being with us here this morning. Every morning that we gather together, Lord, your presence is with us. Your holy love is here with us, God, to, to fill us, to set us apart, to make us like you, um, and to, to, to spread that love to one another, to go out of this place and to spread it to other people, God. Um, and I pray that as we talk about this, um, this, this issue of sin that we're talking about today, um, that you would help us to see the, 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 the weight of your grace and your love for us even more, Lord, so that we might be people who mirror that well in a world uh, around us that is desperately in need of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in a series on sin. You can see right behind me here on the, uh, on the slide. It says, what is sin? Uh, we're in a series on sin. If you haven't uh, been with us at all on any Sundays or you kind of forgot, um, and what we're doing is we're trying to recapture, in a sense, the word sin, right? It's, I think it's a word that there's a lot, of, a lot of fear, a lot of discomfort around, and a lot of times for really good reasons because maybe of different settings you've been in, places you've heard people talk about sin or ways you've seen it expressed in different um, settings, whether in the, in the church or not. And, and I think that's a reason to actually to talk about, to try to understand it in its depth and try to understand what Scripture is talking about when it uses this word. And I think if we do dig deeper into it, even though sometimes it can be kind of uncomfortable, I really do think we come to a better understanding of ourselves, of the gospel, of our world, and find real hope for the, uh, the biggest and worst issues that we face. And so I think it's important for us to, to do that because I think we really need that. Um, and as we approach Easter, we're in the season of Lent, we thought it was really appropriate to really uh, spend some time working through that. Now, if you remember in the first sermon, um, I said sin relates to us in, in three ways. All right, we are enslaved by sin, we all um, perpetuate sin, and we are victims of sin. This is kind of the reality that we find ourselves in, even though it's an uncomfortable ra- reality to live in. Now, literally the word sin in the, in the Bible, it means to fail or miss the goal. It's kind of a vague and broad definition, but that's what it means. And it actually can be used to describe like missed travel plans or like missed target practice with the bow and arrow. That's actually, uh, it can be described as sin because it's missing some goal. Now, we usually think of sin as actions that we do or we don't do um, that miss the goal of God's purpose. And, And there are plenty of scripture passages that speak of it that way, of committing sin, of you know, I sinned against you. That's how we often use the language to describe sin, kind of referring to an action. We've talked a lot about that, I think, in this series. Uh, but we were having a conversation in community group uh, a few weeks ago. And I'll be honest, in our community group, oftentimes I will, uh, someone will say something and I'll be like, oh, dang, that would have been really good to use in the sermon earlier this week. Um, and I can't go back and use it because I've already preached it. But a few weeks ago, someone said something and I thought, oh, this is really good. I think this is a really good point to make. It was Lisa uh, Trump, and she summed up, I think, uh, what I want to talk about today really well. Um, she was talking about how we need to just, you know, w- we need to have a view of sin, that it isn't just something people do, but it's much bigger than that. Because if, we, if our, our definition or understanding of sin is it's something we do, it's some action we commit or something we will forget to do or not do, a lot of times it keeps us uh, thinking that we can solve it ourselves in some way. 
It makes us think that, you know, oh, if I just don't do that thing next time, or I figure out a way to stop myself um, from forgetting to love this person in some way, I can kind of master the sin around me. Um, We, you know, we can use things like New Year's resolutions or more education uh, or rules that we put in place for ourselves or others through mastering ourselves in some way as a way to kind of defeat sin, okay? And I think when people are highly competent and well-educated, they can be used to buzzsawing through problems or, or finding some life hack to fix the problem around them. And we can apply that to sin, I think, a lot of times. Okay? But sin is not like other run-of-the-mill problems that we face. Right? We, we can't watch a self-help guru on social media or a DIY video on YouTube and come up with some resources to master the sin that's in us or around us. Sin is much bigger than that. And we need to have an idea or understanding of sin that reflects it for us, that, 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 that captures that for us. And so I want to talk about that today. Um, even when we do try to DIY things ourselves, a lot of times it doesn't work out the way that we plan. And I actually have a, f- a few examples of that here, some different DIY projects that didn't quite go the way that people thought that it would. Okay, so first of all, expectation of a really beautiful knitted hat and whatever that thing on that guy's head is. Okay, all right, here's another one. Uh, leaves around like a candle and the reality of <laughs> what that looks like something someone found outside and brought in, into their house. Okay, here's another one. Melted crayon art attempt. <laughs> uh, how about another one of those melted crayon art attempts? Um, okay, this one, is, this one I thought was pretty funny. Maybe you found yourself in this situation. You're doing something on your floor and you're trapped now <laughs> because you accidentally uh, boxed yourself in. Um, this one was pretty funny, trying to make a cat door and realizing when it was too late that you put the cat door on the wrong side of it. All right, and this, this last one, I actually found a lot of these types of ones when I was Googling this earlier. Um, finishing some project and realizing the ladder is now stuck in whatever you were doing. I found a lot of these, actually. This is a really common thing, apparently, when you're DIYing. All right, so this kind of goes to show, when we, when we try to sort of... Um, you know, go and do things ourselves, a lot of times it doesn't work out the way that we think. And that just kind of compounds the problem of, of sin, I think. And it really shows us that sin is something bigger than just what we can master or, 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 or kind of correct around ourselves, right? And I want to talk about this today in the understanding of calling it capital S sin, all right? And let me explain what I mean by that, all right? I want to talk about what it means that we are enslaved by and victims to sin. What does that mean? What does the reality of that look like? And so what we're going to do is we're going to explain what that looks like, kind of go through some scripture passages that unpack that, and then end with a note of hope in God's response to it. And I want to get you to think about sin in a way maybe you never have today. That's kind of one of my goals. Okay, there are places in scripture where sin is described as something alive and active. It's working against us. It's like a cosmic terrorist, a slave owner, a dictator, a totalitarian regime, a system that we're all stuck under the power of. It's like an invading force, a virus, described almost as if it has a mind of its own, standing up to and resisting God. It's like something got created out of human rebellion, Not lowercase s sin, but capital S sin. 
And that's what I want us to talk about today, this thing that keeps us locked up in a jail that we've kind of created for ourselves. I want to talk about what it really means for us to see that. And I think a good, maybe, description of it or understanding or analogy for it is like gravity, right? Gravity is something that affects us every single day. We can't really master it. You can, you can do things to try to counteract it. You can jump. Some people are better at jumping than others. I am not good at jumping, so gravity has an extra pull on me, I feel like. We can do things like get in planes to like, fly around, but all we're really doing is kind of managing gravity. We're not defeating it, right? We're not, we're not f- do, doing anything to uh, end the power of gravity. And the thing about gravity is we only know what's there because we see its effects, right? This is not something you can study in a lab or like with a, and see with a microscope, right? This is not something you can see. You can, we know it's there because of the effects of it, right? And I think that's how capital S sin works too, right? We can't see it, right? This is not something we could study with a microscope or see with a telescope, right? But we know it's there because we see its effects. And it's this thing that kind of keeps us prisoner in a lot of ways. It keeps us chained down. It kind of keeps us from doing anything that we might want to do sometimes. So let's examine a few passages that speak of sin in this way and talk about what it actually looks like in the real world. All right? Now, we actually see an example of what we're calling capital S sin right away in Scripture, and it's immediately after Adam and Eve and the introduction of of sin in the world. It's in actually the fourth chapter of the whole Bible, and so you have Adam and Eve, and they have a, a couple of sons. Um, long story short, okay, one of them is named Cain, the other is named Abel. And Cain becomes jealous of his brother Abel after he feels like he's shown up by him. All right? That's not really what it seems like Abel's intent was, but that's how Cain feels. He's angry about it. He's upset. And his anger leads him to do something that at this point in the story of the Bible is completely unprecedented, and that's to kill, to kill his brother all right? It seems like wild, and where did this come from? Why did this happen? Right? And I want us to focus on the language that God uses to warn Cain against this action, because it's very telling, I think, and it's very interesting that it shows up right away in Scripture here. So Genesis 4, 6 to 7, we find this conversation between uh, God and Cain. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not what is right, do what is right. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So God describes sin as something outside of Cain, like a crouching predator waiting for the right moment to attack and destroy life, specifically the life of Abel. But as we'll see, it destroys the life of Cain in another way as well. We see this happen to humans as they commit sin. He implores Cain to resist, to rule, to try to rule over it. But if Cain gives into it, it won't just be that he's done something bad. He will have been overtaken by sin, like a predator capturing its prey. And that's actually what happens. He doesn't rule over the sin, and sin increases its activity in the world as he kills his brother Abel, spreading sin like a virus and infecting everyone who comes into contact with it. And if you keep reading the book of Genesis, you see that the spread of that sin continue on out from there. So if we fast forward uh, to the time that Paul writes the book of Romans, much later on in history, he describes sin activity in multiple ways. So there's all this interesting language that Paul uses to describe sin, okay? Here's some examples of sin's activity in Romans. Sin came into the world, 
like a character entering a story, 512. Sin increased, that's chapter 520. Sin exercised dominion, that's 521. Sin seized an opportunity, chapter 5, verses 8 and 11. Sin produced, chapter 7, verse 8. Sin revived, chapter 7, verse 9. Sin worked death in me, 713. And sin dwells. Verses, chapter 7, verses 17 to tw- and 20. All right, you see how these are like describing uh, uh, something alive, right? Something that has its own intent almost. That's how Paul describes sin at this point. It's like sin had been a very busy entrepreneur of chaos and death, working overtime to spread itself through people, to overtake people, to crouch and attack and take over people like prey, just like we see with Cain to vandalize God's order, his completeness, his shalom, like we talked about a few sermons ago. And it's beyond the point for Paul where we can just rule over it, okay? At one point, Paul speaks of the frustrating challenge of trying to work against sin in chapter 7, verses 21 to 24. And I've highlighted here a couple of specific things that, that show the problem for him. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Think about this language here, a law at work in me, waging war against me, making me a prisoner, needing to be rescued from it. Okay, Paul can't just master himself to get out of this. No, no sort of positive thinking is going to be the thing to get him out of this predicament. Now, I would, I would imagine that you resonate with this as, to some degree as you kind of think through it and maybe apply it to yourself in some way, right? Feeling that like even when you want to do good or follow after Jesus to honor God, you find as you actually try to do it, oftentimes in the day-to-day, it's not as easy as you think for whatever reason, right? You, you, maybe you don't follow through. Maybe it's just not that important to you actually at the end of the day to actually follow through on, on this. Uh, maybe there are unintended consequences. You think you're doing good. You think you're honoring God in some way and you find out actually the opposite has happened for some reason. Um, you, you do good, but you realize you're doing it for the wrong reason. You realize your motives are compromised in some way. It's not necessarily just to do good uh, or to glorify God in some way, but you think there's some benefit you might get out of it. Um, there is this gravity at work. It's going against us. It's keeping us from being as free to do good and to honor God and to resist sin as we might like to think we are a lot of times. But capital S sin, I think, works against us in other ways, too, all right? And this is where we start to see the totality of the problem as it's talked about in Scripture. There's a, 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 a theologian at Yale, his name is uh, Miroslav Volf, and he grew up during these ethnic civil wars that took place in the 90s in Croatia and Yugoslavia. And he had to really find, he needed to reflect on, uh, on, on all this quite a bit because he'd witnessed firsthand a lot of this racial conflict going back and forth between different race groups in his country. And I have always found his description of the problem, here using the word evil, incredibly compelling because of how grounded and real it feels. 
Okay, and this is from a book he wrote called Exclusion and Embrace. He says, in addition to inflicting harm, the practice of evil keeps recreating a world without innocence. Evil generates new evil as evildoers fashion victims in their own ugly image. From a distance, the world may appear neatly divided into guilty perpetrators and innocent victims. But the closer we get, however, the more the line between the guilty and the innocent blurs, and we see an intractable maze of small and large hatreds, dishonesties, manipulations, and brutalities, each reinforcing the other. We choose evil, but evil also chooses us and exerts its terrible power over us. Carl Jung wrote, It is a fact that cannot be denied. The wickedness of others becomes our own wickedness because it kindles something evil in our own hearts. Evil engenders evil. The tragedy of sin, I think, is that most of the time, or at least lots of the time, the people who do even the worst things are doing so because they feel justified in some way, right? There is something that has been done to them to form them into the image of wanting to do sin or evil that they do that was outside of their control, and they're reacting or responding against it, okay? They feel right. They feel justified. They feel like victims, and sadly, they're often right, and it creates this horrible mess that we all are stuck living in. A disturbing but I think important example of this great power of capitalist sin is its ability and its ability to fashion victims in its own ugly image, like Wolf says, is seen when we study the effects of trauma on people. In his book called The Body Keeps the Score, uh, Bessel van der Kolk recounts the story of a patient named Tom who fought in Vietnam. Uh, in a surprise ambush, Tom's best friend was killed. Okay, and this is, I'm quoting from uh, Vander Kolk here. He says, Since time immemorial, soldiers have responded to the death of their comrades with unspeakable acts of revenge. The day after the ambush, Tom went into a frenzy to a neighboring village, killing children, shooting an innocent farmer, and raping a Vietnamese woman. After that, it became truly impossible for him to go home again in any meaningful way. How can you face your sweetheart and tell her that you brutally raped a woman just like her or watch your son take his first step when you are reminded of the child you murdered? Tom experienced the death of his friend as if a part of himself had been forever destroyed, the part that was good and honorable and trustworthy. This event stuck with Tom forever, and it impacted his relationships with his wife, with his kids, with everyone else, kind of locking him in a cage fueled by grief and the death of his friend and coming out to him of him in unspeakable horror that he lived with, frozen in this PTSD. Now this book, uh, The Body Keeps the Score, is about the effects of trauma on the brain and the whole body. It's kind of exploring what things like this do to us. And as we study the brain, we have come to learn more and more the effects that trauma can have on it. Now, okay, it's really important to note that we're always learning more about the effects of trauma through new research, and this is our understanding at the current moment. And everyone's experience and response to trauma is different, okay? So I think it's really important to, to point that out. It's dependent on many different factors, and it doesn't always work this way, okay? So let me be really clear about that. But some trends that we see <clears throat> in the impact of trauma to different levels, to be sure, are this. Vander Kolk again uh, writing, he says, trauma results in a fundamental reorganization of the way mind and brain manage perceptions. It changes not only how we think and what we think about, but also our very capacity to think, right? And, and 
as we study the brain, we see trauma can actually short-circuit it in different ways. It can freeze people in flight or fight, not allowing them to be able to control their emotions when triggered. They can feel like they are constantly defending themselves against something that has happened in the past. It can put them constantly in survival mode. And we see this sometimes. It turns people cruel, makes them dangerous. Uh, There's anger and rage even to those that are closest to them, that you don't understand why is this happening? Why are they doing this? Causing them to hurt others around them on a regular basis, leading oftentimes to more trauma in other people. There's even an intergenerational nature to this that we could see. For example, sometimes when people experience trauma, they adopt a, a justice perspective, it's called. Feeling justified in what we could, call, we could call this sinful action because of their experience. What they experienced or what they didn't get maybe as a child, for example, gets repeated in the next generation. Okay? You think of a parent that was neglected as a child, feels like they did so much to care for themselves growing up that they've now earned the right to be selfish, to resu- which results in neglecting of their child, right? The sin working through trauma in all sorts of ways, what we see is it never stays put. And this is the, the, the problem. It always spreads, doing what Paul says in Romans, increasing, exercising dominion, seizing opportunities, working death in us, all the while squeezing around us like a boa constrictor, choking the life out of us as we feel It's burden on us more and more and more. Even if we try to do good, again, sin is there, crouching at our door, desiring to have us. And it leaves us feeling like we have no future a lot of times, but to continue to be stuck in these cycles of pain and hurt and vandalism of God's shalom, his completeness, his order, his his purpose and will for us to flourish on his earth. Our future is only ever more of the same. Our future really, and Paul says this in Romans 5 verse 12, is that what comes with sin is death. And that becomes our future because of this. Okay, So what can be done? What can, how do we break these cycles? How do we resist the power of sin? I think there are all sorts of things that we humans do to try to manage the sin around us, right? We're not stupid. We see the effects of this on us all the time. And, and even uh, if, you know, you don't believe in sin, right, you, we're still responding to it. We still see this in the world, right? And often these are very good and necessary things coming from all sorts of parts of human society, right? Things like therapy and psychology, obviously a very important way to learn the effects of sin on us and to help people to deal with it. Um, businesses, right? If you work in a business, there's probably practices you have to kind of guard against, um, you know, different, uh, different crimes or different ways that you could sort of uh, manipulate the system or your role in it. Um, government, trying to pass just laws, uh, putting in safeguards for corruption in our institutions. Um, you know, justice systems and police, whose job it is to limit evil, to fight back against it in some way. Um, nonprofits doing hard and often thankless work that is really incredibly necessary to serve people who have been victims of sin in the world. Um, all sorts of different things that we're trying to do to limit the sin around us. And I think Christians should be the first to celebrate these when we see this type of work being done and advocate for them, to join in, to help to limit the effects of capital S uh, sin. But I also think we need to realize that these things always fall short in some way. Right? Nothing that these things are doing upend the capital S sin that we're talking about because that's a feature of humanity. That's become a part of us. 
in all sorts of different ways. Like, how do you fight gravity with these things? We see it all the time, right? A father who tries to not make the mistakes of his father in some way overcorrects with his own children. Uh, Politicians who maybe are trying to pass really good legislation do so for narcissistic reasons and become demagogues and increasingly divide people that follow them or don't follow them. Laws that get passed like seem good in the moment and then we find out years later there's some unintended consequence. Right? There's a famous crime bill from the 90s that I think of when I think of that. Um, justice systems become corrupted. Uh, news coverage that's supposed to um, expose wrongdoing gets sensationalized for clicks and attention. Hey, these things may limit sin, but they never defeat it. And sometimes they even make it worse and create new problems. To fight sin and truly win and resist, we need something from outside of the system to step in. Something not under the power of sin to rescue us. Right? You don't stage a rescue from inside of the prison. It has to come from outside of it. And that's what we see God do for us. This is what really the gospel is all about, is approaching capitalist sin in various ways. And really all of life of following Jesus is learning what that looks like and all sorts of depth. And we're trying to always dig into this as a church here at Red City. But I want to talk about today one key thing, one key way that God rescues us from the effects of capitalist sin on us, and that is in forgiveness. All right, Galatians 1.3, Paul says, Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. We call this forgiveness. This is, a, this is what the Christian word for this is. As the one without sin, who has not committed it, who lies outside of its power, God forgives us through Jesus, rescuing us from this present evil age. And remember I talked about how capitalist sin makes it so we don't have a future. It, it kind of keeps us from having the future we would like to have, right? Well, God's response is to give us a future through forgiveness, Desmond Tutu, he, he was an archbishop in South Africa, um, very famous for starting a movement kind of based around forgiveness to respond to racial apartheid in his country. He has a very famous quote. It's actually the title of a book he wrote um, about how without forgiveness, there is no future. We need forgiveness to offer us a path for a hope and for a future. To, to Desmond Tutu, without forgiveness, there could be no future for his country in the power of racism operating through it, the power of capital S sin working through racism, racism that has kept his country really chained to it for hundreds of years without forgiveness. That was the only way forward he saw. And we see this in God's response to us, that he forgives us, which gives us a future. In Colossians 2, 13 to 15, Paul says, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ and he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Right? There's a lot in there, and I want to unpack what all that means and how this work of God to forgive us, to rescue us, gives us a hope and a future. Okay? First off, God offers us grace and forgiveness and freedom through Jesus' death, setting us free from the power of sin and actually defeating its grip over us. That's what this is talking about here. Now, if you've been in church before, 
You've probably heard about forgiveness. I hope you have. Okay, if you have not, if you've been in church for a long time and this is not something you've heard much about, I'm really sorry. This is this should be one of the most essential things we talk about. But I think we can become so familiar with it that we kind of, you know, forget it, the importance of it, instead of constantly going back to it and reminding ourselves of the need for it, of how we are given a hope and a future by God's forgiveness. Right? This is a message we need to hear for the first time and for the thousandth time, and the ten thousandth time, right? We need to constantly be recalibrated back to this, really every day, I think, okay? Because like I said, sin keeps us locked in a cage. We get formed by it. Often we look like the sin done to us. We kind of talked about some examples of this. But what it does is it, it can come to define us, right? Someone who can do all the good in the world, but still is stuck believing that that stuff will never outweigh something that they've done in their past, right? They will always feel like a fraud, right? And I actually think the people who project the strongest sense of their own power, their own uh, strength, and their own righteousness, their own I don't care what people think about me attitude, I think a lot of times that comes out of uh, feeling more chained up by something that they've done in the past than they would ever let on. Okay, that's how it works, feeling stuck with no future, Hannah Arendt, is a, she's a Jewish philosopher. She says, without being forgiven, released from the consequences of what we've done, our capacity to act would be confined to perhaps one single deed from which we could never recover. We would remain the victims of its consequences forever. That could be through trauma, through thinking something was our fault and just feeling trapped by that forever, through something we did out of evil done to us, or just some mistake that we made that hurt people in, in terrible ways that we don't ever feel like we can get out of. Okay, like we said, sin increases. It seizes opportunities. And that can worm its way into our identity of ourselves, the way we view ourselves. Uh, I came across a description by an, a writer named Elizabeth Brunig. She calls it a shame or punish identity. That's how we view ourselves. That becomes our identity, serving a kind of penance. We've all experienced this, right? Probably to large and small ways, the way in which something we've done can come to define us in some way, right? I can think of small things that I've done where I was afraid I, maybe I just went too far in how I was talking to somebody and I was afraid I said something I shouldn't have and I was up all night. (laughs) Just kind of like, oh man, I think, I hope this person doesn't hate me now. And I just, you know how you long to like talk to them and figure out everything okay? And if so, like I really need to apologize and get your forgiveness, right? But in that, before you get that, you just feel awful by yourself, right? Some things are bigger than that though. Like there were just a little apology can kind of fix it. I can think of one time for me. In trying to care for someone well, I had met with them as a pastor. I actually did the opposite. I did something that really hurt them. It wasn't my intent, but I woke up to an email one New Year's morning, and this person told me, I hadn't seen him in years, but he told me, he probably would never go to church again because of what I'd done to him. Happy New Year, (laughs) right? Getting it started off the wrong way by, I felt, so much shame and failure because of that. The kind that could really, honestly, like stay with me the rest of my life as I try to do ministry, Right, trying to look at people, trying to serve them, and being afraid of doing the same thing again. Thinking I'm all the good I can do in the world is never going to over, never going to overtake this mistake I made, this thing that I feel with me. Right, and and maybe you go days without thinking of it, 
but then something triggers it, right? And you get plunged back into that identity, that reminder of what you've done, and think about how terrible you are, how much you suck, how much you hate yourself because of this thing. And we can try to do, you know, things to make it right in some way, but sometimes that's just not possible, right? Sometimes we can't undo them. By forgiving us, Jesus takes that shame-based identity that sin locks us in, he takes it on himself, and he obliterates it on the cross. He makes it so this identity disappears. It can't be something that comes and defines you. He's not going to be freaked out by what he finds that deep down you might feel yourself locked up by. He's not going to define you by your sin, by your guilt, by your shame, by your embarrassment, because he doesn't do to us what we've done to him or what we've done to others. He's outside of the power of sin. He's not locked under its power like we have been. And so we are given a new identity, one from outside of the power of sin, by God, by Jesus forgiving us, right? You are not going to be defined by what's been done to you and by what maybe you've done out of sin done to you. And if Jesus, the king of the world, says it, it's true. And that gives us a future. It offers us a new future than the one that we might carry around with us because of sin. Or whatever that looks like. Whatever that looks like for you. And I think a primary fruit of forgiveness is hope. A primary fruit of forgiveness is hope. Because when we accept forgiveness, maybe for the first time for something we've done, we can feel a hope for a future that we maybe never experienced, the hope for a path forward out of the cage of of shame and punish identities that we find ourselves living out of sometimes. That's hope now in the present, knowing we don't have to be defined any longer in our day-to-day lives by this thing, and also for hope of the future, for a world that is not dominated by capital S sin. This is something we long for, we wait for as Christians. We just have to take the forgiveness. Now, this doesn't always mean that we will escape consequences for sin, right? Sometimes we do need to work through things, okay? I'm not saying that this gets us off the hook sometimes for managing the fallout of things we've done, right? And I think this is a process. Sometimes it's a daily one, like putting clothes on in the morning, right? You know, wake up with your clothes on in the morning. You've got to put them on. You've got to be intentional. You've got to pick them out. Forgiveness is like that too, right? We have to think about ourselves as people. We have to take that forgiveness on us, I think, sometimes every morning to make it a part of who we are, okay? But what that means is I think we can be frustrated by that, that sometimes we think, oh, man, is this, like, really tough for me? Like, why can't I just, why can't I just make this stick? I think actually what that means is that every day we get to be set free by the continuing power of God's gospel and brought afresh into God's presence. I think that can be actually really powerful for us because it's a constant reminder of our need for God, of the identity that we've been given, of the grace that he's offered us, that we're free from shame and guilt and sin itself because of God. And I think this interruption to the power of capital S sin has a profound effect on our spheres of influence too, okay? It it does more than just help our identity and our view of ourselves and offer us, just us, a, a hope of a future. I talked in the first sermon about how I think understanding sin in its depth, that, you know, far from making us hate and judge other people, that's how often we've encountered sin getting talked about as a reason to hate other people, to create division. 
when we, it actually offers us hope and liberation and healing, a way to not hate everyone around us, moral resources to not think everyone else around us is the problem in the world and that they suck. And all we have to do is make them feel that. Because we can feel like that's what we should do a lot of times, right? And that's sin working through us, that making us feel like we need to respond in evil done to us or the evil that someone else has done. But when we take on this idea of forgiveness... I think it offers us a new path forward with the people that have hurt us, the people around us that we despise who maybe have really done real hurt and damage to us. Okay? It allows us sometimes to pass hope onto others through extending forgiveness ourselves. Right? Forgiveness breaks cycles. Instead of keeping the power of sin going, of letting it increase, exercise dominion, seize opportunities, work death in us, right? These things that Paul talks about in Romans 7. Forgiveness is like a vaccine to the virus of sin as it spreads. It stops it in its tracks, and it kills its ability to spread through us and others. If we're people who have a future because of forgiveness, how can we deny that opportunity to others? I don't think we have a right to. It can be hard to accept this, right? It can be hard to live this out, especially when we have truly been hurt, okay? And I think it's important to point out it doesn't always mean a completely restored relationship with someone, right? Or or going back to the way that things were before. It doesn't always mean that. It's going to look different in different situations. And I think we need wisdom. We need people around us to help us us to, to talk about what that might look like. And honestly, we need God's spirit, his presence to be with us to help us to know what it looks like as well. But we talk at Rest City about how Jesus calls us to radical stuff when we follow him. We believe that. It is is radically different than the world around us. And this is one of those things, I think. Because this is what Jesus does to us. Now, like accepting his forgiveness, we have to work at this sometimes. Sin is still crouching at our door. It's trying to provoke us into becoming what has been done to us. And again, we have to choose sometimes every day to walk in it. But it's worth it. It really is worth it. Like Desmond Tutu says, this gives us a new future here in the present. One that does not look like the past. One that does not trap people in their faults, but takes people who have experienced forgiveness and offers it to others too. And you get sometimes, this doesn't always work this way, but sometimes you will get a chance to offer someone a hope, a future, by forgiving them. Right? You get to pass that on to them as well. And I think that's a really noble and exciting thing to get to do. This is God's future. I think it's slowly eroding the power of capital S sin until Jesus defeats it one day fully. Until then, he walks with us in forgiveness. And we just need to let him walk with us. Let's pray. Lord, we live in a world that is we see the brokenness, the effects um, of sin all around us all the time. And it's a hard subject to talk about. It's not a fun one to get up here and talk about, if I'm being honest. I don't enjoy this. But Lord, we have to deal with it because it is the reality of the world around us. And because you love us, because you care about the reality of the world around us, you speak to it. You meet us in it. And Lord, you forgive us. God, I pray that you would help us to 
maybe, maybe people in this room right now need to experience in a new and fresh way the hope, the future that you offer us through your forgiveness, God, as we think about the ways in which we have been chained up and locked up by the power of sin in us, Lord. I pray that you would speak to the hearts of people who feel that right now, God. You would help them to feel, feel deep within them the hope, the, the future that comes through your forgiveness, to set them free, Lord. And I pray that you would help us to be people uh, that, that, that ex- extend this to those around us, even when we're hurt, God. Instead of responding in the form of sin that gets done to us, Lord, that we would break its cycle and power and we respond in love and forgiveness and hope to other people as well, God. That we would help, to help us to do what we can, even in the really small ways, Lord. Most of us don't have great power to affect things at a very large level, but even in the small ways around us, Lord, I pray that you'd help us uh, to, to break the power of sin through forgiveness, through hope, through seeking out your son by having relationship with him through your spirit. Lord, work through us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.